Good to have that music back, is it not? Good to, good to get your blood pumping a little bit. But hey, again, welcome. Thanks for being with us this morning. Uh, thanks for sharing a meal with us around our tables. We kind of figure out all that's going on and, and how to bless and serve each other and how to just remember the Lord in that moment. Hope you're having a great Labor Day weekend. I hope that it's actually including uh, a lack of labor. Hope you're able to just relax a little bit and enjoy some downtime with some friends and some family. Uh, those of us who are here this morning, we're part of a very special club. Uh, we're part of the club that doesn't have friends who own a home in the mountains that we get to go to on Labor Day weekend. So welcome. Good to have you guys. Good to have you guys. I'm just like you, just, just like you, but super excited to be preaching again. It's not a typo. Uh, it's my turn again, my, my time to be back with you, but a very special thanks to Margaret Feinberg, Ryan Long, Bill Armstrong, uh, Danny Ortley, and Dan Sarian for doing such a fantastic job filling in this pulpit uh, the last five weeks. I have to admit, though, I feel a bit inadequate up here now. I mean, I haven't written a book uh, like Margaret, let alone 10 or 20 of them. I haven't received any professional degrees in counseling like Ryan. I'm not a former U.S. congressman like Bill. I can't preach and play the guitar at the same time like Danny, and I'm not smart enough to give a talk like Dan. Uh, so next time I take a break, I'm going to invite losers to stand in this pulpit so that I look better when I get up here and not, not the opposite. Uh, but hopefully uh, through the month of August, you were blessed and challenged through some really fresh voices and and fresh perspectives. Uh, I've been chomping at the bit, though, to come and speak to you. been super excited about kicking off uh, the second half of the, the story, the New Testament version with you. Uh, and so to make up for some lost time this morning, I thought I'd just preach for three or four hours. So let's get into it. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you came on a great Sunday. Uh, we are, in fact, kicking off the second part of a series called The Story. If you think about it, our hearts are captivated by stories, aren't they? From children's bedtime stories to those crazy folks who stay up all night to catch the midnight showing of the newest Hollywood blockbuster, there's something incredibly powerful about stories. I mean, from Lord of the Flies to Lord of the Rings, from Titanic to The Hunger Games, we all love a great story. Not many of us are motivated or moved by Sudoku or linear algebra or long-winded sermons. But as soon as I say, let me tell you a story, all of a sudden, it's like, hmm, story? For some reason, you have to say it like Pluto in the, you know, in, the, in the movies, but we all love story. We're all captivated by story. We're all changed and moved by stories. And I think that happens, and that's true, because you and I are actually a part of the most incredible, most important story that have ever existed. It's the story of God. See, the moment God spoke creation into existence, he more or less began telling a story. It's a story about Love, it's a story about loss, and ultimately it's a story about eternal life. And last spring, we decided to, to go through a resource entitled The Story, which takes biblical excerpts and puts them in chronological order for us. And I hope that what you saw last spring and we'll begin to see this fall is that every story in the Bible, it actually connects to all the other stories. Every story in the Bible, it actually connects to a much larger story that God is trying to tell. And every story in the Bible actually connects to your story. It can make sense of and give meaning and purpose to your story. So stop by the Welcome Center. We've got these books available to you. We want you to read along with us. We want you to be transformed. And we want you to lose yourself in God's story because I think you'll end up finding your own story. I had to say story a hundred times in the first two minutes because I just missed saying it the last four months. Now it's probably safe to assume though that as we begin the second half of our story that, that what happened to most kids over the summer also happened to you. You forgot everything you learned in the spring. 
So let me quickly review for us what we covered in the first part of the story. Here's a summary of 21 chapters in 21 seconds. God made it all only to have humanity make a mess of it all. God graciously promised to redeem and repair it all. God is clearly in control of it all. God's desire is to liberate and give life to it all. God dwelling with us is the point of it all. If we're not careful, we can wander through or waste it all. God wants us to walk in victory through it all. Ultimately, it's about trusting God in it all. God helps us to make sense of it all. God wants to partner with us to rebuild and remake it all. And no matter how bleak it looks, God's plan is always being worked out through it all. There you go. There's the Old Testament. 21 seconds. Here's the thing, though. If, if we really thought the first part of the story was powerful, we haven't seen anything yet. It's all building. It's all leading up to other chapters, to other characters, to other parts of the story. And so I'm so excited for us to dive uh, into the New Testament. Let's pray and ask God to join us in this place as we, as we do that. God, we want this to be more than a book study. We want this to be more than a hangout in a social club. We want this to be a moment that we encounter and experience you. We believe your word is living, that it's active, that it can speak to us, that we can be changed by it, God. So, so do that now. Breathe your spirit into us that, that we can become more like you, learn more about you, be closer to you, Father. Make all those things happen and then some. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I heard a, com a comedian uh, talk about something that I thought was the perfect setup for the beginning of the New Testament. His skit was all about uh, the things you'll never hear a man say to his wife. Here are the top five. Honey, this suitcase is so light. Are you sure you brought enough clothes for this trip? <laughs> Number two, how about we forget going to the Broncos game tonight and just stay here and watch a good chick flick? <laughs> Let's put a sweater on the dog and take some fun pictures of it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're ever going to hear that. I just need a good cry today. <laughs> or how about that is so Pinterest worthy? But not to be outdone here, the top five things you'll never hear a woman say to her husband. While you were in the bathroom, they went for it on fourth down and missed. But if they can hold them to a field goal, you should still win your fantasy matchup. <laughs> I, I don't think Becca knows what four or five of the words mean in that sentence. Number two, let's just leave the toilet seat up at all times. That way you don't ever have to mess with it. <laughs> Number three, I'm so happy with my new hairstyle, I will never change it again. I love when you watch sports. I just wish you did it more often. <laughs> Guys, you ever hear that? Yeah. Or how about that girl's wearing the same outfit as me? Sweet, I'm gonna go tell her how pretty she looks. <laughs> Chances are good you will never hear your spouse say something like that. That's crazy talk. All right, that's the definition and epitome of crazy talk. But crazy talk is exactly what we're gonna hear here in chapter 22 of our story. See, the Old Testament comes to an end with the words of a man named Malachi. If you look on page 304 of your storybook, these very last lines are written by this Old Testament prophet. And what he's doing is he's talking about a man they called the Messiah, a man that the, the Jews believed God would send to do a couple of things. They believed that God would send this man to rebuild the temple, reward the righteous, and reestablish the Jewish nation as a dominant world power. And then after that, you flip over four pages, and all of a sudden, you're in the book of Matthew. All right, it takes four pages to go from Malachi's words to Matthew's words. But here's the thing. Those four pages actually represent 400 years. It's not as if Malachi sent us a message on Friday, and then on Saturday, we heard from Matthew. 
400 years have passed. And not just any 400 years. Those 400 years in between those two books are referred to as the silent years. Because in all honesty, the the people of God didn't hear God say anything crazy. They didn't hear him say anything at all. It was 400 years where nothing noteworthy or memorable was said by God to his people. Now think about this. We get upset and bent out of shape if someone doesn't respond to an email within the day or get back to your text within the hour. And I'm so guilty when it comes to that. I'll respond like four days later to a text and then the conversation's already happened, the events already come and go. Like, what are you talking about, Thomas? But imagine waiting for 400 years for an answer, for a reply, for a word from the Lord. There's an entire sermon series there, but what we're gonna see here in chapter 22, and one of the reasons why I love the beginning of the New Testament so much is because God is about to break the silence. He's about to say something. You haven't heard from me for 400 years? Well, you're about to hear from me now. And I'm about to say something crazy. This makes your husband's comments about the weight of your suitcase seem rather commonplace. Over the years, there have been a handful of Hollywood producers who love to make a cameo appearance in their own movies. One of my favorite, M. Night Shyamalan. There's Quentin Tarantino, Stan Lee. But the best of the best, right, was Alfred Hitchcock. He would always make a cameo appearance in his movies. In fact, 39 out of the 52 movies he's seen. And if you weren't paying attention, if you weren't aware of it, if you didn't know any better, you would assume that this random old guy, or sometimes old woman, was just some random extra that they brought off off the street to fill a seat, fill a space. That's not some random person. That's the writer of the story. That's the one who created it all. And in a way, that's exactly what we're going to see here in chapter 22. God's always been the one writing the story. He's always been the one directing the story. He's always been the one guiding and executing the story. But now as the scene changes, as chapter 22 begins, as we flip that page over, he's about to enter the story himself. Open your Bibles to John chapter 1 or page 309 in your storybook. It says this, in the beginning was the word. Now, these particular words should sound strangely familiar to us. In the beginning. Think back. Where have we heard these words before? In the beginning. Oh, yes. In the beginning. We heard and we read, right? The very first page of the story, it begins with what words? In the beginning, God created. And John is using the exact same language here because it seems as if he, he wants to use the same words we read at the beginning because he wants to take us back to the beginning to reveal something new to us about the beginning. In the beginning was the word, he says. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the very beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Or if anything like me, it's like, John, what are you saying here? A lot of word pictures going on, a lot of analogies. You're about to lose me here, man. Let's see if we can't unpack this. To the Greeks of the day who believe that there was this invisible force, this impersonal, incomprehensible force that created the world. Let's call it the evolutionary process. Just some force, some process where everything came into being. They called this, not the evolutionary process, the Greeks called this the word. And John says, you know that word? Yeah, it's actually God's son, Jesus. To the Jews of the day who believe that God created the heavens and the earth through his speech 
Or as the psalmist reminds us, by the powerful word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Again, John says, yeah, that word, that was God's son, Jesus. He's trying to show us that somehow and in some way, Jesus was there at the very beginning. And not only was he there, but he was literally the one through whom God created the cosmos. John says, the cosmos didn't come about because of some cosmic accident. No, no, no. They came about because of Jesus. And it didn't come about because some sounds and syllables came out of the mouth of God. No, it came about through Jesus. Creation somehow came about through Christ. You ever been in one of those situations where there's this word on the tip of your tongue, but you just can't get it out? Like, like you know what word you're looking for, but you, it's all mumbled and jumbled, and you're like, ah, oh, there's this word, this word, this word. Yeah, John says that word, Jesus. Next time, try that. Like, if you can't figure out what word it is, just say Jesus and just see what happens. It's like, pass the Jesus? What are you talking about, man? I mean, I, whatever, right? But John says there's this word, there's this idea, this concept of how it all began, where it all started, who was there at the beginning. And John says, guess what? That carpenter, that teacher, that, that long-haired kind of hippie guy that was walking around us for so many years, guess what? He was there at the beginning. And somehow through him, all of creation came into existence. He is the word, God's word, spoken in our words. Jesus is the power. Jesus is the logic. Jesus is the authority, the message, the creative expression of God. But it gets crazier than that. Look at the bottom of page 309. It says this, the word Jesus became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. How many Trekkies we have out there? Any self-admitted Trekkies? May the force be with you. No, it's not Trekkie. What is that? Star Wars. See, I'm not a geek. I'm sorry. Sorry, you're not a geek either, but whatever, right? Ah. Yeah, just live long and prosper. There'll be another sermon illustration, I'm sure, with there. May the force be with you, right? Star Wars coined that term. But actually, that, that reality, that happening, happened through Jesus. The force behind the world, the force behind all of creation was now with us. In the coming of Jesus, the word of God, the full revelation of God, the very son of God, it was made accessible to us. It was made knowable to us in a way it had never been known before. Again, God literally took his words that were out there and hard to grasp and he put them into our words so we could get it. I love the way John 1.14 reads in the message. It says this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The God who made the highest mountains in Nepal moved into a house in your neighborhood. Now stop here and think about how crazy this is. This is crazy talk. The God of all creation living in your cul-de-sac, right next to you. You think hearing your wife tell you to watch more sports is crazy? It is. This is crazier. God's next door to you. God's right next to you. He's living in your neighborhood. He wants to be as close as possible. See, this is amazing because other gods, even if they exist, they're always out there. Other gods could care less about you and I. Right? We're too small for them, too insignificant for them. Other gods are burdened by us, could care less about us, but not this God. This God wants to be close to us. This God wants to live next door to us. And so it says the word, the God who made it all, he's now living next to you. He's right here, flesh and blood, in your cul-de-sac. Jesus, that's him. 
But why? Why would he do this? Why, why would God, who lives in the heavenly realms, right, who exists outside of time, why would he come down and live at a certain point in time? Why would he come to earth? Why would Jesus, why would God come to earth? I mean, was he bored? Is heaven, is heaven what most of us fear it will be? Like an unending eternal church service? He's just like, I'm tired of singing hymns for all of eternity. I want to get out of here. Is that why he came to the earth? Was manifesting the mind of God becoming mundane to Jesus? He's looking for something new, something fresh to do on a Friday night? Let's go to earth. Did he lose a bet with some angels? <clears throat> yeah, you got to go down there now. I mean, why did he do it? Well, the text tells us that he came in grace and truth which I think means he didn't come dragging his feet or whining like some child who's been told to do their chores, right? Do I have to? He didn't come that we came in grace and truth. He came willingly. He came with excitement and anticipation. He came to take God's words and to speak them anew and afresh to us. He came to take God's light and shine it on us. He came to take God's life and share it with us. He came to take God's love and shower it on us. He came to take God's glory and show it to us. He came because he was so excited that you would see and know and experience the Father. That's why he came. Do I have to? No. When do I get to, Father? When do I get to go down there and be with them? When do I get to go live amongst and with them? That's grace and truth. And we call this crazy thing, right? God becoming flesh, taking on human form. We call it the incarnation. And we read about it in the Christmas story, don't we? It's one of the most amazing and familiar stories of all time. And I know, I know it's a bit weird to have Christmas in September. I mean, nobody brought me any gifts this morning. I don't know what the deal is with that. It's weird. It's hot outside. We're not exactly in the holiday spirit. I want to talk about this story for a few minutes, though. We don't have time to talk about all of the stories, so I want to point out a few things I want you to take away from it. See, baby Jesus in this story, he was a bit too young, a bit too small to say anything to us. I mean, I guess God could have made him like that creepy E-Trade baby, right? It's like in the crib holding his iPad. Like, mom, what's the deal? Let's move this thing. I mean, he could have come like that, but that, that would have been a little strange when he came as a baby. And again, although he couldn't say anything to us in this chapter, I think God was saying a lot to us through that baby. Let me share with you three things. The first thing God tells us in the birth of Jesus is this. You no longer have to be afraid of me. You no longer have to be afraid of me. So God decides he wants to come and live with us and amongst us. And so he chooses to come in the form of a baby. Now, he probably didn't wear princess diapers, but that's all I could find around the house. But he came to be a baby. Deity wearing diapers. I mean, this is crazy talk. If you're going to come to the earth... Why, why not come as some mighty king, some wise old sage? Shoot, why not make yourself a supermodel, a superhero for that matter? If you're going to make a cameo appearance, then come on. Go big, Jesus. It's like we need to teach Jesus that you only, you only get a one time to make a first impression. You never get a second chance to make a first impression, Jesus. So what are you doing? Why are you coming to wear these? Deity in diapers? It doesn't make any sense to me. Well, there are several reasons why he probably chose to be a baby. A new life with God probably needed to start with a new life on the earth. Powerful symbolism there. 
See, the broken, sinful family tree that all of us were a part of, it needed to be interrupted. And so a new baby boy actually birthed a whole new genealogy. Maybe he needed to prove that he was the son of God, so he wanted to be miraculously conceived and birthed by God himself. There's a lot of reasons why he came as a baby, but I think there's one more reason that trumps all the others. See, there's nothing more peaceful, nothing more heartwarming, nothing more disarming than a brand new baby. I've never met anyone who was terrified at the sight of a newborn. Now, I've met some new dads who were a little overwhelmed, like, <gasps> maybe a little grossed out, like, what's wrong with their head, right? And some kids are cuter than others, I get that, but no one's ever terrified. No one's ever scared to death of a baby. You aren't supposed to fear a baby, and you aren't supposed to fear God either. For one reason or another, though, that's exactly what we do. Humanity naturally fears God. Think back to the garden. After Adam makes this mistake, after he comes face to face with his own imperfections, his own selfishness and, and short-sightedness, what does he say? He says, I heard you coming, God, and I was what? I was afraid. So I ran. I hid. Isn't that amazing? That's what sin does. Sin distorts your view of God. So you stop seeing him as a loving father that you should run to, and you see him as this being you need to be afraid of that you run from. That's what sin does, and it happens immediately. I heard you coming, and I ran. Wait, wait, wait. Four, four verses before that, I was reading about you talking with God in the cool of the garden. Why are you running? Why are you hiding? Why are you afraid? Well, that's what sin does. It makes us afraid of God. And we can all relate to that, can't we? We all know what that feels like. We cover up, we pose, we hide because we're afraid of God. And in fact, most religious traditions, that's the primary emotion you're supposed to have when you approach God. You're supposed to do all you can to not upset God and experience his anger and his wrath. From the ancient Mayan world, where they're just giving him more blood sacrifice so he doesn't get angry, even to the Jewish faith, where they just don't want to upset the Lord. Fear was always the primary motivating factor, the primary emotion you were supposed to experience. But in baby Jesus, in deity and diapers, God comes down and says, you afraid of this? You afraid? No, you're not afraid of this. I'm gonna come to you wearing this to prove to you once and for all, you don't gotta be afraid of me. I don't want fear to be the emotion. I don't want you to run and hide. I don't want you to be afraid of me. I want to reverse that trend. I want to change that tendency. I want to relate to you. I want to communicate with you. I want to be with you in a way that doesn't revolve around fear. And it was right here. This is the way he did it. Author Philip Yancey describes it in terms of a fish tank. I'm sure we have a few fish lovers out there, right? You know the feeling then. If you've got a fish tank, you spend any time trying to care for a fish, you know the feeling. Side note, I once had a fish tank and I had this one cool little, little mini shark thing. I couldn't tell you what it is. I think it was on sale. That's why my dad bought it. So we put it in the fish tank and then a few days later, I got to change the water. So I decided to change the water and I put them in a little bag and then I fill the fish tank with, you know, tap water and I just throw the fish right back in there. And, and we kind of had a moment, him and I, he, he like looked at me and then all of a sudden he started ramming his head against every side wall of the fish tank. I'm like, what's wrong, little buddy? What, are you excited to see me? No, I was actually freezing him to death, right? The water was too cold. I was supposed to warm up the water. So the four fish was dying in there and all of a sudden, you know what happened? That was my first and last fish. I'm talking to Ryan, professional counselor about. But fish tanks, because I know, sorry, I digress. 
Philip Yancey had a fish tank and, and he said he loved it and it was actually going well. He wasn't freezing his fish to death. He was caring for them. He was putting in just the right amount of chemicals. He was filtering the water, making it just the right temperature. He was putting in just the right amount of ultraviolet rays. And he says, in light of all that he did for these fish, he expected the fish to like show some gratitude. He expected the fish to kind of be grateful to him. But that wasn't the case at all. Every time he showed up, guess what the fish did? They hid. Every time he got closer to the tank, they, they hid. They went for cover, dove for cover in the nearest shell, the nearest rock. No matter how much he demonstrated his love for them, no matter how much he did for them, they feared him. They just could not grasp that this being cares about us. That this being, this incomprehensible being, this large, different, other than being, he actually wants to be known by us. He wants to spend time with us. No, no, he wants to hurt us. That's what the fish always believed, and so they hid. They were afraid. I wonder if that's not true for us and God. I think God tried to come up multiple times, and every time he did, we did what Adam did. We run and hide. We were afraid of him. So we had to do something radical. He had to, he had to do something to convince us that we don't have to be afraid of him anymore. And I think Jesus coming as a baby should do just that. There's an old wives' tale about a king who fell madly in love with a commoner. We know this story, don't we? We've seen it play out even in our own world. Well, the king wrestled for weeks with how he could woo this woman, how he could win this woman's hand in marriage. His financial advisors told him to march through the city and parade around your wealth. Show her that you can provide for her. The military advisors told him to wear his battle attire, show her the size of his army and his kingdom, proving that he could protect her. His political advisors told him to wear his crown and all of his royal garb, proving that he could lead her. But the king didn't listen to any of his advisors. Instead, he decided to give up all of his wealth, give up all of his accolades. He decided to become a peasant just like her. Because in this sacrifice, in this selflessness, in this servitude, he would prove, not that he could provide for her or protect her, but more importantly, that he would give it all up to be with her. He wanted to prove that he loved her. And so he gave it all up. And he went down to her level. Is that not the story of Jesus? Is that the story of Christmas? The story of the incarnation? Him wanting to be with us. And so he actually gave it all up for us. So he didn't come as a strong warrior. He didn't come as a superstar athlete because he doesn't want to impress us. He wants so much more than that. And that leads us to our second takeaway. First, he says, you no longer have to be afraid of me. But secondly, he says, you were made to have relationship with me. You were made to have an intimate, personal, close relationship with me. See, God comes to earth here in chapter 22 of our story, and that's a big deal. But it's not the first time he's done this. It's not the first time he's made his presence known on the earth. Think back to our story, all spring. For Jacob, God showed up like a strong angel. For Moses, God showed up like a burning bush. For the Israelites, God showed up like a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. We call all these things theophanies, the manifestation of God's power and presence on the earth. But here's the thing about all those theophanies. They were all rather uh, impersonal, right? They proved that God was real, they proved that he was powerful. They proved that he was holy and different. But they didn't show that he was personable, that he was approachable. And so he comes in the ultimate theophany in Jesus. And he says, yes, I'm holy. Yes, I'm powerful. Yes, I'm different than you. Yes, I'm strong and mighty. But guess what? I'm also interested in having a relationship with you. I'm also approachable. I'm also personable. 
The text here in John says that Jesus made his dwelling among us. The original language there literally means set his tent next to ours. You outdoorsy Colorado type should love that. Yeah, see, God's a camper. He loves to pitch his tent. He loves to, to put his tent right next to ours. Now, that's interesting language, isn't it? That communicates a lot about, about how much interaction you want to have with the people you're living next to. If you come into a city and build a palace with huge walls, what does that say? It's like I care less about you. And that, in fact, I don't want to interact with you. I don't want to talk to you. Don't cross the wall. You come and put a tent in my backyard. That says something completely different. I mean, after I call the cops on you, we'll probably talk a little bit, right? And, well, you put a tent in my backyard and you're probably going to eat my food. Probably going to come in, use my restroom. Probably going to hang out with me in the afternoon a little bit. Come in if it starts to rain. You want to be close to me. You want to have personal contact with me. That's why God decides to put his tent up and not his palace up. Because he wants to prove to you he wants to be close to you. He came on familiar terms. He wants a lot of interaction. He didn't come just to be seen. He came to be known. He came to be loved. By each and every one of us. So that guy living in the backyard with the tent, yeah, that's weird. That's Jesus. He came to be that close. He wanted to have a lot of interaction with you. He wanted to have a relationship with you. And I hope that in the birth of Jesus, you're hearing him say that to you this morning. The third and final thing he says at the birth is this. You never too, too insignificant or too sinful to be used by me. So through baby Jesus, God is saying so many things. He's saying, one, you don't have to be afraid of me. Secondly, you're supposed to have a relationship with me. And third, you're never too insignificant or sinful to be used by me. If you know the story, then you know it gets crazy, doesn't it? The almighty God of the universe enters the world through the scandalous, unplanned pregnancy of an unwed teenage girl. What? Or whatever the Hebrew expression is for what? What? Are you serious? But this shouldn't surprise us. This is, this is what God does. From the liar Abraham to the arrogant Joseph, from the murderer Moses to the adulterer David. We're going to see this trend continue now through Jesus. Time and time and time again, he shows up with the most random, uh, in the most random, unexpected places. And he's hanging out with the most scandalous, undeserving people. I mean, think about it. Jesus, you're coming to the earth. You're making your cameo appearance. You're going to come through her? Mary? She's a nobody. She, she's a high school dropout, unwed, pregnant, teenage mom. You, you're going to come through her? And she lives out in Bailey. I mean, come on. Okay, it's not, it's not Bailey, it's Nazareth. It's worse. Jesus, you ever been to Nazareth? I mean, it, it, it smells better than it looks, which isn't that good. Nazareth? You're going to go there? And Jesus, you're going to send your very first birth announcements to a bunch of social outcasts who have no friends, who have fewer brain cells than, than the sheep that they watch all day. That, that's who's going to get your first birth announcement, birth announcement? And you're going to invite, the very first people, actually the only people you're going to invite to the baby shower are some pagan astrologers from the Middle East? Are you, are you kidding me? I mean, what's wrong with you, Jesus? Why are you choosing to come through scandal and shame and stupidity? See, we wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. I, I tend to stay away from people like that. I tend to distance myself from situations that are marked by those words, but not Jesus. 
He goes right to it. Why? Why would he do that? Maybe he wants to show us, but more than that, maybe he wants to prove to us sin and shame and scandal. They don't scare him. They don't turn him off or turn him away. See, in the way that he came to be with us, God is trying to show each of us that no matter what's happened to us, he's always excited to use us. I gotta say it again because that took me a while to make it right. In the same way, in the way that he came to be with us, God is trying to show each of us that no matter what's happened to us, he's always ready and willing and able to use us. In the Christmas story, God proves that he doesn't mind messy people. He's comfortable in messy situations. He can still work through messy lives. And that should be good news for us, guys. That abortion, that divorce, that bankruptcy, that addiction, that reputation, that lie, none of those disqualify you from being used by the Lord, from connecting yourself to the divine. In fact, it seems like a lot of those things perfectly situate you to meet and be used by the Lord. That messed up life, God's like, perfect. That's exactly what I want to use. Now, don't go out this week and mess your life up and then blame me. Like Pastor said, just get in a big old mess. No. We don't have to go get in a mess, do we? So many of us are already in a mess. It's just life. It's messy. Relationships and finances and hopes and dreams and regrets and fears and failures. It's messy. But guess what? God shows up right in the middle of that mess. In fact, he does his best work right in the middle of that mess. He loves to meet messy people in messy situations, but more than that, he loves to move through the mess. Maybe that's where you are uh, this morning. Maybe you need to hear a word from the Lord that says, in, that, in the middle of that mess and that scandal and that shame and that sin, guess what I'm gonna do, the Lord says? I'm gonna birth something new out of that mess. That's what I did with Jesus. That's what I can do with you as well. You're in a mess. Your marriage, your finances, your kids, your work, your school, you're in a mess. Guess what? God can birth something new out of that mess. Now, it might not be wearing, again, princess diapers, but it's gonna be something new, and it's gonna be so life-giving. But not only is that good news for us, that should be good news that, that we wanna share with other people. Amen to that? See, see we're so, we, we so badly want to ostracize other people and speak negatively of other people and talk about how, how messy their mess is. Don't do that. Don't do that. God moves in the mess. He prefers to work with messy people. He's not ashamed of people when they're stuck in a mess, and neither should we. Right? When people struggle with things that scare us, when people's lives are filled with shame and sin, it normally confuses us and separates us from them. Don't do that. Share the good news that God is right in the middle of the mess. That you're never too insignificant or sinful to be used by him. So hearing your wife give you some fantasy football advice, that'd be crazy talk. Hearing your husband talk about dressing up the cat and taking pictures, that'd be even crazier. But hearing the God of the universe say through baby Jesus, you no longer have to be afraid of me. You were created to have a relationship with me and you're never too sinful to be used by me. Church, that's crazy talk. But it's some of the best stuff I've ever heard in my life. Let me pray that we believe the same. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks and that through baby Jesus, even though he didn't utter a single word, 
that through that baby you communicated so much to us. Thank you, Lord, at the beginning of the story, the second part of the story, you are already starting to undo the things that we read at the beginning of the first part of the story. Fear, separation, anxiety, regret. God, you have come down and you said no more. That is not your story any longer. God, I pray this morning we would hear through that little baby that we no longer have to be afraid of you, that we've been invited into a personal relationship with you, and that no matter what we've been through, you can use us to do incredible good and bring life to this world. Help us to believe that with all of our hearts and help us to share that news with someone this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you guys so much for being here. Hey, if you wanna respond this morning, wanna pray about it, talk more about it, figure out what this relationship looks like with Jesus, come and find me afterwards. I'll be in the foyer. Uh, Have an amazing weekend. Enjoy your extra day off. Don't forget your dollar in the bin on the way out. Uh, Be strong and courageous. We'll see you soon.